Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox, and I have power, but just the electrical kind, not the kind that Peter Wiggin wants. I'm also a pundit and a journalist. I've covered campaigns and politics for over 20 years. Hi, I'm Daniel Dresner, and I have never played a game of laser tag in my life and therefore feel incomplete. In my incompleteness, I am also a professor of international politics at the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy, and I write for the Washington Post. And we're going to try something different today. And I think it's going to be a series. We have called it Cannon Vodder. And it's going to be shows in which we take on some, you know, big piece of science fiction literature, something really influential that's also problematic. And we do the IR in it, but also kind of discuss whether or not this still deserves to be canon or should it be fodder. That is correct. And today we are going to talk about Orson Scott Card's Ender's Game. And we are going to do that for two reasons. The first is that it definitely qualifies for the canon part. Uh, This is a well-known science fiction book, which was actually turned into a completely forgettable movie, I would add. And second, uh, because our patrons wanted it and we listened to them. And you can be one, too, if you go to Patreon and sign up at patreon.com slash space the nation. Anna, how about some context for what we're going to talk about? What do we need to know about Ender's Game besides the fact that it's, quote, very influential? Well, I just want to provide some context. Maybe if you just want to enjoy the book, you shouldn't listen to the context. (laughs) (laughs) But here we go. So Orson Scott Card's story of the story, in his own words, begins when he's 16 and he has this idea for basically laser tag. And he gives himself some credit for that and says something like, I will actually, in the beginning of the book, I'm going to be referring to this introduction. He says, it was a good idea and something like it will certainly be used for training if there is ever a manned military in space. That is the kind of person we're dealing with. Okay. So (laughs) um, he actually writes up the novella in which he has characters and plot. He figures out he needs that at some point between 16 and 1977 that novella wins a Hugo Award. Then he puts it on the shelf, writes a whole bunch of other stuff. And then in 1985, he finally publishes it as a novel. Interestingly enough, he feels like the more important book is Speaker for the Dead. He doesn't expect that this is going to be the one that takes off. It got so-so reviews in sort of straight publications. In the science fiction world, it took off almost immediately. It won a Hugo. It won a Nebula. It's gone on to sell a kajillion copies. He has written 26 prequels or sequels of some kind, either short stories or novellas, some of them in partnership with other authors. We don't know if he wrote those or not, but he takes credit for them, and they are in the Ender's Game series. He's also written a bunch of other stuff. He's just a very prolific writer. Mm -hmm. I think one of the interesting things about him is he's written a bunch of religious stuff. He is a devout Mormon. He is, in fact, I believe, the great-great-grandson of Brigham Young. No, that I didn't know. Oh, wow. Yes. And among other things, he has a series in which he reimagines the stories of the wives of the patriarchs in the Old Testament. So... Okay, that was information I don't know if I wanted to know. Um, (laughs) I I kind of want to read some from the introduction, though, because it it did, okay, ruined the book for me. I'll just give (laughs) a little spoiler alert. Uh, Maybe it was already going to be ruined. But among other things, he talks about the reception for the book, and Mm -hmm. he says, 
For one thing, the people that hated it really hated it. The attacks on the novel and on me were astonishing. Some of it I expected. I have a master's degree in literature, and in writing Ender's Game, I deliberately avoided all the little literary games and gimmicks that make fine writing so impenetrable to general audiences. <laughs> yes. Okay. So, and then, um, <laughs> and sort of interestingly, and I think this is relevant to the story itself, the way he talks about Ender's Game, he, he First of all, prints a couple of letters from people who love it. Um, um, uh, Really long letters. Really long letters from people that love it. Another kind of thing you might just want to know about Orson Scott Card. (laughs) He sees the book as an epic tale. And he also sees it as something that speaks to young people who feel like Ender. And, And that's probably true. But, you know, so my one of my favorite authors is Stephen King. Yes. And comparing this to some Stephen King introductions, a big difference is that Stephen King sees his books as being generous and opening viewpoints to people. Like, they speak to people, and they may tell a specific story, but they're really about being human. Right. I find it interesting that for Orson Scott Card, what he thinks is really important about this book is it makes people feel special. Interesting. Um, and we've talked about this before, but there is, so cards on the table, and you will probably, uh, listeners, figure this out as we go along. I think I like this book a little more than Anna did in terms of, in part because I was a really runty kid that was in a talented and gifted program growing up. And so, like, there was a fair amount of identification I had with Ender when I first read this. That was part of what was going on. But that said, you're right that... There is a way in which this book fits a genre that I think the only other one of the other examples would be Ayn Rand's Atlas Shrugged. Which oh my god, is, I thought of that precisely. Yes. So in that, <laughs> and, and in that, there are books where when you read them, there are essentially two kinds of characters. There are the brilliant people, and to use Rand's logic, looters and moochers, or the the not as good. And to be clear. This is a better book than Atlas Shrugged. I, I cannot stress that enough in a variety of ways. And I don't mean to, to, to damn the, the book and pointing it that way. But it is easy when you read this to identify with Ender and with mm-hmm. his friends and to oppose um, those who are lesser, who wind up you know being somewhat murderous in the book. So, yeah, I, in that sense, I, I agree with you. The other thing I will provide in terms of full disclosure in terms of Ender's Game is that the only other... Orson Scott Card book I have ever read was the sequel to Ender's Game, which I didn't realize he'd even written until a couple years after I'd read Ender's Game. Which uh, sequel? The <laughs> sequel was Speaker for the Dead. And right. okay. how do I put this? I hated it. I hated it so goddamn much. It is a poorly written major letdown from Ender's Game. Um, it is like reading the novelization of Return to Oz as opposed to The Wizard of Oz is the way I would put it. It is not a good book. Again, some interesting ideas, actually, to be fair. But the book itself is like, you know, he, I, he went further to remove, you know, other things that, that find literature has in that book like (laughs) i don't know symbolism or adverbs or things like that you know stuff like that character yeah that's a big one here um you know i actually thought of atlas shrugged too when i was reading this because it's a book that again when you read it as a young person you're like yeah 
you know, like the special people, they rock, you know, and then you kind of get older and read it and you're like, ooh, <laughs> did I really totally identify with this character? Because yes, he's, he, he is an interesting character. We're going to get into it. Yeah. I know. Um, but that I feel like is a real pivot point between reading this as an adult and reading it as a kid. My backstory, I want to do backstory about just when we read this book ourselves. And I don't remember exactly when I read it as a preteen. I was also a gifted and talented person who was not very popular, <laughs> not good at sports. And I had the very first Atari. <laughs> I had in television. So that's like, you know, that, yeah. Right. So I loved it. And I will say that the twist in this book has stuck with me, for, you know, the entire time I've been alive. That twist, which I guess we won't do a, you know. We'll get, we'll get to it when we talk about the plot, um, yes. Is, is his, what I think major innovation is in this book. And I have thought of it before during various armed conflicts, let's say. And it is one of the parts of the book that I, I genuinely find um, compelling. Yeah. Uh, rereading it today, you already know how I feel. So So it was interesting. I, I, as I said, I think I've, re I've read this book multiple times. And it's sort of one of those books that I occasionally will just sort of crack open. And again, as much as I was comparing it in some ways to Atlas Shrugged, this is a much better novel in a whole variety of ways. And I want to agree with you on that. Yeah. Like it is... A novel. It is a it novel is with a yeah. screed. Yes, exactly. Um, <laughs> as we we'll get to the plot, it, it, there are legitimately shocking moments as I was reading, as I was reading the book. But I I looked at this and I must have I must have read this when I was in grad school for the first time because I don't have any memory of when exactly I read it for the first time. But this is the only copy I've ever had of it, and according to this, it was in the mid nineties. So I I must have read this when I was starting work on the dissertation and therefore trying to create my own work of, of staggering genius and probably had some sympathy with it then. And there are parts of it that I have, like there are, cer there are certain books that I have outside of sci-fi, like Thomas Harris's Silence of the Lambs or Scott Turow's Presumed Innocent. Those are, are really good books as well, I would say. In fact, in some ways, much better books. But they're books that I reread, like, you know, as sort of comfort. And occasionally I will do that with parts of Ender's Game. Hmm. You know what? We should do an episode where we talk about our comfort reading. Ooh, I like that. That is good. Because my comfort reading is usually Stephen King. Oh, excellent. Like, yeah. All right. So we've given context. Now let's get into the book. All right, let's set the table for the plot, or as we will refer to it, the gist of it. In Ender's Game, Earth has fought two space wars against an alien species formerly called the Formix, but informally called the Buggers. And Earth needs a general to devise the military tactics needed to fight the Third War. The International Fleet Command focuses its attentions on one Ender Wigan, a rare third child in a world of overpopulation, and the younger brother of a very vicious Peter Wigan and a very empath empathic uh, Valentine Wigan, both of whom were rejected for battle school for different reasons. At the age of six, Ender is chosen after his monitor, uh, which allows the IF command to observe him, is removed and he beats up a bully in school. He agrees to go and leaves his family. The battle school orbits the Earth and revolves literally and figuratively around the battle room, in which child-led armies battle each other in zero gravity in a futuristic version of laser tag, but with suits that freeze up when hit with a light gun. Anna, would it be safe to say that the children in this school act and think far beyond their years? It bothered me the entire time I read it. Honestly, 
It did. I just, I kind of couldn't get over it. I also just wanted to know why six? Like, why so young? I mean, they sort of say only a child could come up with the creative tactics. But like, six? Like, what was the, what's the science behind six? Like, I want to know. Like, because it seems like kind of a random age in a way. And also so young. I mean, I know, I mean, I kind of assume that you're just supposed to be blown away by the, by the youth, right? He just exaggerated it. Like as an author, his choice to go with six was to just really put capital letters on young. But Ender's monologues <laughs> as a six-year-old. I kept on having to You mean to his interior back. monologues as a six-year-old? Yeah, his interior monologues as a six-year-old. I just, yeah. You know, you didn't think that way as a six year old, Anna? I mean, I remember, you know, (laughs) I didn't think that way. But I I guess there is a way in which it's affecting to read. It's affecting and somewhat disturbing to read about children that are supposed to be this smart. Um, And given what winds up happening to them, I think there is an element of of. I don't know how to put this. It's it's gripping. There's something about reading children about children who are put in this kind of environment and they're brilliant in in a variety of ways and as a result are really genuinely traumatized by what winds up happening. I just feel like I I could just start picking apart everything, but like I also wondered, why are they so smart? Is there some kind of like eugenics program happening? And that's why they're such smart six-year-olds. We don't really get any of that. There's some hint at like, you know, we had your parents have another child for a specific reason. And then I just want to put out there that if you wrote this same novel, but used a more genuine kind of POV of a six-year-old, I think that could be really interesting too. Like it could be a smart six-year-old, but I don't know. Like we, we, if I stick, if I, we could, I could go on already. Okay. So let's just pause it. Yes, they're six and they're brilliant. All right. Let us move on to battle school. Ender goes to battle school. The school administrators do their darndest to essentially isolate Ender, to put him in positions where the only way he can emotionally and physically survive is to be so much better than all the other cadets that the other cadets will follow him and admire him. Uh, This starts with his launch class, after which he is promoted early and aggressively, first to uh, Salamander Army, then to Rat Army, and then to Phoenix Army. He makes some friends, but makes uh, as many enemies, children like Bernard in his launch group, and Bonso, who is his first... I believe it's called Bernard. Is it Bernard? Oh, that's right, Bernard, because he's French, yes. It's pronounced in the French fashion, thank you. Uh, First Bernard, and then Bonso, (laughs) who is Spanish, and are murderously jealous of his talents. He also engages in something called free play, uh, which is a surrealistic computer game designed to make the students confront their psychological demons in a variety of ways. One that uh, confronts Ender repeatedly is a game called, or a scenario called The Giant's Drink. Ender does well and is eventually promoted to a commander two years early. He trains his army, Dragon Army, in uh, completely new ways that exploit his ability to shift his orientation in the battle room and his perspective in the Zero-G battle space. The school commanders stack the deck against Ender in an escalating fashion, creating a ridiculous series of unfair battles, which he nonetheless wins uh, by defeating all the armies. However, he also has to wind up killing Bonso in self-defense, although he does not know it at the time. 
Anna, the only way I would put this is, are you surprised that Ender was not a complete psychotic by the end of his time in battle school? Or was he? I, I was going to say, I think the question is, is he a complete psychotic? I, I think you know, there are ways in which this book is good. I'm not sure if all of them are intentional, but the ambiguity about Ender's state of mind is one of the things that I liked about it, that he seems to be teetering on the edge of sanity and insanity, and that what is driving him insane is cruelty, right? And and yet also having to engage in it. I happen to be reading a book that is in part about child soldiers, a nonfiction book by Martha Minow, who's a professor of law at Harvard. And she engages in the problem of child soldiers by asking, can they be forgiven? And her question is, we really only can forgive people who know what they're doing. Like, if someone doesn't realize they're doing bad, like this is in the law, right? And I do think it's interesting that Ender seems more aware than almost anyone else of what he is doing, right? Even though it is just a game for him. I mean, even just a game, quote unquote, presented to them as just a game for many years, that is. Which it is, to um, be fair, for most of the time of the, the book. For most of the time, it is a game. Yeah. Um, but he he also understands the seriousness behind it and also like what they're doing to each other. The other thing I will say, though, is that this book evinces a faith in meritocracy <laughs> that I am not sure <laughs> exists in the real world. Like that might be, besides them being six, the idea that just being the best will in fact get people to follow you is a nice thought. Well, so this is where maybe let me put this way. I mean, this is this is within the culture of the military, as it were. And you can argue that maybe the military, you know, which remains the most trusted institution in this country, might also wind up being the one of the last places where at least some adherence to meritocratic principles still exists. Um, I'm not I'm not sure how much I want to defend that. Could point, ask some but, people in the military about that. Yeah, no, I know, I know, I know. I, I, I mean, I, I, there, I, you can caveat that in a number of different ways, but the culture is still, I think, in the military based on meritocracy, I guess. And you know who Ender reminds me of? I have to put this out there. Ted Cruz. Oh, no. No, 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 no. Sorry. No. I draw the line at this, Anna. You have gone too far. (laughs) In one particular way, which is I know way too much about Ted Cruz. I've interviewed him many times. I've read his sort of quasi-memoir, been on the campaign trail, whatever. Were you Um, in Cancun? No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) Um, His memoir slash, you know, campaign book is fascinating because he seems really unaware of like what he's giving away, like the kinds of details he's giving away. But one of the things that happens in the book is he's unpopular and he decides he needs to be popular. And so he embarks on this program (laughs) to make friends and become popular. Okay. And the really heartbreaking thing about that episode in his book is he to this day probably doesn't understand how sad that is that he even did that yes yes <laughs> that, that is the way that ender reminds me of ted cruz or i will say ted cruz reminds me of ender perhaps i all but, i will say is is that ender is in almost every way superior to ted cruz as a character oh well that's a as they say a low bar 
While Ender is at uh, Battle School, uh, we go to Earth, where Peter and Valentine are the ripe old ages of 12 and 10. And Peter hatches a plan with Valentine to start exerting influence in politics on Earth. They create pseudonymous accounts designed to engage with other people on the uh, news nets uh, of the time. Valentine plays the role of Demosthenes, who is the nationalist, arguing that they cannot trust the second Warsaw Pact. And at this point, pretty much all of Earth is in a league to fight uh, the Fornix. Peter plays the role of Locke, which is the moderate. Uh, they start to write columns uh, for these news nets. Within a few short years, they are both incredibly influential uh, because they are brilliant children and therefore you know, things they write sort of recur almost like memes among, you know, more uh, influential people. So, Anna, I have to say, this is the part of the book that I really did find way ahead of its time, actually. And I'm curious what you thought of that. I agree that he seems to imagine, you know, the uh, social economy of the Internet uh, way ahead of its time. I did find the whole Demosthenes and Locke subplot to be kind of weird in its place in the book. Like it, it could be completely excised and it would not make a difference in the book. All you really need is Peter the sociopath and Valentine the empath, like to, to order to give Ender the context of, you know, angel and demon on his shoulder kind of stuff. And I, I did find the Valentine, um, scenes where she's kind of called in to like reinvigorate his Schwadeneve, as it were yes <laughs> yeah I, I mean I found those pretty I mean I, I wasn't like totally like emotional about it but you know they did what they needed to do in a quasi believable way but there is IR <laughs> yes definitely in this subplot yes which I agree it, it was one of the reasons why I like, but it, it's and it, it plays it, a little yeah. bit of a part in terms of like why the bugger war is important the whole, but I found it kind of like, why are we doing like what? Why like why? So why let me put it this way: this? You, you might be correct that in some ways it could have been a simplified plot. But that said, writing in 1985 and describing a sort of political, a public sphere that is essentially online, in which it is possible for anonymous people to gain tremendous amounts of influence, presumably through you know the sheer force of their rhetoric or the extreme extremist nature of their rhetoric look i, I you know i have to tip I'm my, sure that's cool i gotta I tip, mean, you gotta tip just, your cap i mean you know it, 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 it uh, tap kip tap tipped, <laughs> tip capped cap tip cap tipped yes there you go cap tipped i mean that but that's um, not this way there are i i think and this might be something we're, we're gonna have to talk about later on in in subsequent things i think you always have to acknowledge science fiction where something that is predicted actually does wind up coming to pass um, because God knows there is a lot of science fiction where it goes a very different way. It's not wow, the same thing. Wow, this is going to be a theme in the in the whole series we're doing here. Because I, while I, I I agree one must doff one's cap and tip one's hat when people get it right, I don't find that to be like one of the things I value about science fiction. Like getting it right is not like what is compelling to me. No, some I, of the things that people get wrong are really interesting. No, I think know? that's that's a that's a good way of putting it. And 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 I want to be clear, getting things right is not the be all end all of of okay. science fiction under any circumstances. But that said, you know, I, right, yeah. Sure again. <laughs> you know, I'm taking the cap off. That's all I'm saying. 
Okay. Right. Um, you can't see it, but, but Dan actually put on a fedora and then <laughs> dipped it in order to be able to, to make that statement. There we go. All right. So we move from uh, battle school uh, onward uh, after Ender recovers from those traumas through, among other things, an intervention from Valentine. Uh, He goes on to command school and learns that the third war or the third invasion is not the buggers coming to attack Earth, but rather the reverse. The humans have sent fleets out to attack uh, all of the myriad bugger worlds. They are going on the offensive. Um, And essentially, it's sort of an all or nothing risk in terms of whether these battles will succeed. He is, command school is on Eros, which is a moon that uh, the buggers had occupied during the first uh, war. He is trained there by Mazer Rackham, who is a uh, Maori warrior who was responsible for Earth's victory in the second invasion. Ender is introduced there to the simulator, which is the command school equivalent to the battle room, uh, and is also reunited virtually with most of his old friends from the battle school, who are now his subordinates in the simulator as he uh, is trained in which he can sometimes just train a small squadron of fighters. In other cases, he's uh, learning how to do things with an entire fleet. Mazer sets about a training regimen of simulated space battles with the Fornix, pretending to be them, warning Ender that the battles will get tougher because the buggers will learn from what Ender has done previously. The battles grow more pitched and more intense, and Ender grows more exhausted, uh, losing both his appetite and his ability to sleep. Mazer presents Ender with his final test uh, in which he is outgunned by a thousand to one against uh, a planet. Ender wins, but only at the cost of destroying the planet uh, that the Fornix were defending in the simulation. At that point, spoiler alert, the big plot twist is revealed in which we learn that most of the simulations that Ender had engaged with uh, were actually real battles. Ender was the fleet commander and he had just won the war by destroying the Fornix home world. Anna, the, the adults give an explanation for why they did what they did. Do you buy it? And also, again, I think we're in agreement that this is actually a legitimately impressive plot twist. It is a legitimately impressive plot twist. Like I said, it stuck with me for decades. And the idea of the sort of bait and switch that um, military command does with more frontline soldiers um, in more metaphorical ways, let's say. <laughs> well, actually, not meta- so the, they do it not in the sense of like, oh, you think this is a game, but it's not a game, but just in the ways that, that people think of you know, fr- our frontline soldiers and how young they are. Right. Yeah. And do they know the damage they're doing and what is the weight of responsibility upon the generals um, and whatnot, the commanders of this army? It is pretty affecting as a twist as well. One of my general complaints about the book, and again, we have a section where we'll talk about complaints, but just to put a pin in it, is the pretty cardboard way that the adults are portrayed like you sort of said in the beginning like the children are the heroes the adults are the bad guys basically and they're not given much to do or ways to be and you just sort of have to take it for granted that there's you know that they might have feelings too <laughs> about this battle <laughs> you know um i would say that they wh- have feelings not- i mean they some of them have feelings about ender right you know that would be right. fair but but yes there is and i actually kind of like you know the graph the one character right. who sort of is might is a human among the adults <laughs> um no he's an actual character and that like there's actual he's an actual character to him yeah. yes yes yeah um 
because it would be again like it'd be a different book to kind of understand like what what the decision making process was for this again there's sort of a blank here for me about why do they have to be children i can understand very much and this is where i think about it in terms of you know uh generals and and soldiers in real life i i understand very much why you would want to pretend that the stakes are lower and pretend that um you know this is more like a game than it is real life but another thing i think that bait and switch does is illustrate the you know trauma of war yeah right Um, which doesn't always happen during the war because it is more like a game and it doesn't really hit a lot of people until they leave when it is um, sort of weighing upon them that they killed real people. You know, in the heat of battle, we're encouraged not to think of our enemies as real people, but that can come to you afterwards. Yeah. And then like, you know, it's a great, (laughs) what else can I say? (laughs) Like it's one of the best twists in all of science fiction. Yes. No, there's a reason why we're the reason, you know, this might be canon fodder, but there's a reason why canon, you know, it, it, it's the twist that makes it canon. Honestly, I think like uh, that would be my main argument for, which I guess we'll get to in a more specific way later. Okay. So, uh, we finally end the book, which is immediately after Ender's victory. Uh, there's some IR because while he's catatonic from shock, there is a brief five day war between the second Warsaw pact and everyone else. Essentially there had been brewing tensions on earth in terms of what would happen in a post bugger, uh, uh, world. The Warsaw Pact, you know, then decides it it wants to launch a war. And among other things, everyone wants control of Ender because Ender is now seen as, you know, truly the Earth's hero. The five-day war comes to an end because Peter, as Locke, uh, proposes that the Warsaw Pact exits the League. The United States is still allowed to control the international fleet. Peter does want to bring Ender home as sort of his really pet in some ways, you know, as as a way to sort of launch his own political campaigns. Uh, Valentine prevents Peter from doing so, um, and Ender winds up agreeing to go with Valentine on the very first colony ship into Fornix space. So they leave uh, on a colony ship, and Ender is made governor of this uh, new colony. As Ender explores the new world, he discovers that the buggers had been trying to communicate with him all along, but could only do so through his dreams. And he discovers that basically in their last weeks of life, because remember, he has destroyed them all, they have left him with a cocoon of larvae, I assume, that could restart their species, provided he finds a place for them to live that allows for coexistence with humans. Uh, He therefore becomes uh, the speaker for the dead. Um, Anna, uh, it would be safe to say that that Orson Scott Card packed a shit ton of plot in those last 30 pages. Yes? Um, One of the sort of technical problems with this novel is a real reliance on telling and not showing throughout the novel, like where he's just like, Ender earned their trust. (laughs) Like that's... Their right. trust through sheer competence, yes. Yeah, like he just sort of states, like, and over time he earned their trust, and we just sort of don't get to see, like, how that happened. Which is, um, again, to be fair, he does do that, like, through the battle school years. You do see how he does that. Yeah, some, although there's some battle school segments, like when, when time when time passes in battle school, yeah. like you get a lot of like, and he continued to earn their trust, or and he became respected, right, or like, right. whatever. And, you know, that last 30 pages is literally all telling. Like, it's all just, this is what happened. Until the scene where he finds the giant's drink scene. Yes. 
where he realizes um, that basically he's actually seeing on this planet what he had been engaging in in the free play um, when he was in battle school. And, and it's interesting that you say he, they were reading his dreams because my interpretation of it was that they were seeing the game, which was sort of based on his dreams because the computer is so smart. Because one of the things that it, we haven't mentioned, because there's just a lot of things in this book, is that the buggers are thought to communicate basically telepathically. Right. And for some reason, I guess I thought, well, they're intercepting waves. Like they're like... No, to be clear, I I think we're on the same page here. What I was trying to say was that the buggers were trying to communicate with Ender through his dreams. Right, right, right. Towards the end of command school, he starts having these weird dreams where he's essentially replaying that game. And I assumed that was the buggers reaching out and trying to contact Ender somehow. Yeah, no, I think that that's... Well, see, I'm not sure. I guess, I I, again, this sort of depends on how you think telepathy works. Right, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, <laughs> uh, you know, like. But yes, you're, I, I agree with right. you that I think the buggers figured out who Ender was through presumably seeing what he was doing in the free play, not necessarily just through his dreams. I grant you that. Yeah, yeah. Like there's some sort of way that they, you know, in the ways that someone out there could be watching our television shows from, you know, 80 years ago, um, the buggers were somehow intercepting like the radio waves or I'm not sure, <laughs> electronic stuff. I found that scene to be good, though. For one thing, it is a lot of showing and not telling. And, you know, I do come to like Ender almost in spite of myself in this reading. Like, <laughs> as much as I kind of don't want to like him because I feel like Orson Scott Card is manipulating me in a way to like him, which is what authors do. So I shouldn't be mad. Um, or as Valentine says seems- in the book, human beings manipulate each other all the time. This is true. He he does ring true. Yeah. You know, like he, he as much as like I, the six-year-old thing bothers me, if we take sort of the specific age out of it, he is a man-child. Right. Who has been horribly scarred and who wants to be able to live with that, has to find a way to live with that. And that the Fornics, you know, offer him a way to live with it. I did find their whole, like, and we forgive you part of it a little weird. Because <laughs> so, basically, the queen of of the Fornix sort of says, yeah, we, we killed, you came and killed us. And you know what? Like, our bad. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. See, this is where I, I get. Like, we, we provoked you. Sorry about that. Like, we didn't realize you were sentient. Um, the way I which, thought of you it, know, the way I thought of that was, I mean, let me put this way, that, First of all, I, I had two reactions to it. The first is is that I actually like this part. First of all, because it's a legitimate plot. It's not as important as the first plot twist, but it actually is a surprising plot twist, and I was not expecting it. I remember when I read True. it. So that True. that's that's thing one. Thing two is is that yes, in some ways, one of the problems with Card's characters is sometimes that they have tremendous amounts of metacognition. All right, so (laughs) that would be the way to put it, which is Ender very frequently figures out what others are trying to get him to do. And he, he, you know, he's extremely able to get outside of his own head and look at himself in some ways. And I guess in the the sort of the hive queen, as it were, um, was able to similarly do that in theory to understand 
The humans are coming to destroy us because we cannot communicate with the humans. We attacked them twice. It is therefore unsurprising to some extent that they are coming now and attacking us. We've tried to communicate. It can't work. It's an extremely dispassionate view of things. I grant you that. But it's also not incorrect. But yeah, no, I mean, I, I think it's just interesting. I guess one way that I can kind of wrap my head around it as a believable thing, which I know we're already in the realm of insect-like pe- <laughs> insect people, you know, whatever, um, is that they think differently about mass death. Right. Which, again, is because one of the more... Because there are a fucking lot of them. <laughs> it's, it, it's where, I, again, it's things where I, I honestly think there are subtleties in this book that I'm not even sure Orson Scott Card is entirely aware Yeah, of. see, I, I, I think you're... I, I'm not sure if he sees that either, because in some ways, like, what happens with the buggers is not genocide to them. Like, it seems like genocide to Ender. Right. Because that's the way he thinks about individual lives and mass lives. But there is this kind, there is an indication, again, whether Orson Scott Card meant it or not, that this species is so alien that they think about their own existence in a slightly different way. Right. And that literally, the the lives that were lost were just the lives of queens in some ways. So, yes. Right. Okay, Anna, okay. I think we now move on to uh, the next section of Cannon Fodder, which will be, Anna, is this book problematic? Oh, boy, Dan. <laughs> is it problematic? It's very problematic. Well, I wish I should say Orson Scott Card is problematic. Fair enough. The book itself has been criticized itself as being problematic, but the real problem is Mr. Card. Mm-hmm. Um, he's basically been canceled, as they say. Um, uh, in 2013, a bunch of things kind of happened at once. First of all, I believe um, internet hero uh, Dave Weigel somehow found uh, Orson Scott Card's column, which appeared in a very obscure blog called The Ornery American. (laughs) Uh, And in (laughs) what had been his most recent column, Orson Scott Card uh, has a incredibly racist and reactionary rant that accuses Obama of being a dictator. And I will just read one part of it. It's sort of the racist part, (laughs) although there's a lot of racist. So he says, oh, he also uh, posits all of this as like, I'm just saying the whole like, (laughs) I'm just saying this could be the thing that happens. He tries to sort of, he tries to play out like what's going to happen in a second term of Obama's presidency. Obama will claim we need a national police force in order to fight terrorism and crime. The Boston bombing is a useful start, especially when combined with random shootings by crazy people. Where will he get his national police? The NAPO will be recruited from young, out-of-work urban men, and it will be hailed as a cure for an economic malaise in the inner cities. Economic malaise in the inner cities. In other words, Obama will put a thin veneer of training and military structure on gangs and send them out to channel their violence against Obama's enemies. <laughs> Instead of doing drive-by shootings in their own neighborhoods, these thugs will do beatings and murders of people trying to escape people who all seem to be leaders and members of groups that oppose Obama. Already thugs who serve the far left agenda of Obama's team do systematic character assassination as a means of intimidating their opponents into silence, but physical beatings and legal disappearances will be even more effective, as Hitler and Putin and many other dictators have demonstrated over and over. (laughs) Anna, I don't see why you're so upset. He predicts the rise of Antifa. I think, frankly, it just shows the visionary nature of... uh, Never mind, sorry. Oh, okay. And then um, I am going to read some quotes. Oh, no. 
Um, let's see. Um, I'm trying to... Uh, okay, here's a good one. This is also from the Ornery American. Okay. The dark secret of homosexual society, the one that dares not speak its name, is how many homosexuals first entered into the world through a disturbing seduction or rape or molestation or abuse, and how many of them yearn to get out of the homosexual community and live normally. Um, <laughs> Yeah, is, that's uh, unfortunate. Uh, yeah. yeah, that's that. Laws against, that is, as you would say, problematic. Yes, laws against homosexual behavior should remain on the books, not to be indiscriminately enforced against anyone who happens to be caught violating them, but to be used when necessary to send a clear message to those that flagrantly violate society's regulation of sexual behavior that cannot be permitted to remain as acceptable as equal citizens within that society. So anyway. Um, <laughs> <laughs> okay, Orson. I think we. I think you know. Let me put this. I think we need a gavel at some point where we can just say, "Is okay. Orson Scott Card yeah. problematic?" He is, in fact, problematic. Right. So all this coincides with the um, premiere of the movie mm-hmm. Ender's Game. Prompts a boycott. Um, a bunch of people write a bunch of stuff. He pleads for you know open mindedness. <laughs> you know, and I guess. It fades a little bit, obviously. Like we don't, we're not still talking about him. Whatever cancel culture is, it hasn't reinvigorated the fight against Orson Scott Card. He's still around. He's still writing. If you know these things about him and you read his books, you will find some of the stuff kind of peeking through. In Ender's Game, there's not a ton of it. Yeah, I was. Okay. There is some. Yeah, go ahead. There's some sexism rather refreshingly blatant <laughs> when um, uh, Ender asks, like, why aren't there many girls at the battle school? He's told, well, you know, you know, thousands of years of uh, genetics. They're just not, they just aren't good soldiers, basically. So, okay. And then there's like some weird, um, there's like one very odd casual, like homophobia thing where in Ender's fight with Bernard, way that he gets back at bernard is to insinuate that he's gay um okay he mocks up a message from bernard to the rest of the soldiers that says i love your butt let me kiss it right and this undoes bernard like it's in you know you could say oh it's accurate that's what little boys would do to each other Eh, you know could have gone another way okay whatever that's and, and there's some other criticisms of the book, ones that I'm not sure if I find especially resonant, but I'll just say them. Um, some people argue that he makes a sociopath too sympathetic, and the sociopath in that regard is Ender, mm. and that the book does not uh, come down hard enough on genocide, that it seems to imply that ge- there can be reasons to commit genocide. I think you and I might agree that that's not... No, exactly. I, I mean, let me put this right. way. This is so I would say a few things. First, I will give Card some credit because he's actually pretty explicit in the book about yes, we are going to attack them. This is this might in the end be destructive, but on the other hand, they were attacked first. It's a very Darwinist kind of you know sort of Habesian argument. But also, it should be noted that the adults in the book resist the idea of genocide. Indeed, when when Ender mm-hmm. says, "Can I destroy the planet?" Mazer Rackham. He makes it clear that at least the, the that the buggers actually did recognize there was a distinction 
between military forces and civilians, suggesting that they, in fact, did honor the laws of war. So, and this goes to this question of why children that, that card, the argument that is put in the book is that essentially children have the flexibility of mind and also the willingness to tolerate losses um, that adults don't have because... Well, if it's a fucking game, yeah. Yes, when it's a fucking, exactly. <laughs> Um, so I, to be clear, I don't, I never bought the argument that Ender is okay with genocide. There's simply, that's just not true. I think in the latter 50 pages where in fact he grieves him far more for the buggers than almost anyone else with respect to the, the, the mild homophobia speaking as a former six year old boy, first, first of all, I don't know if this is homophobia so much as that the word, but makes a six year old laugh, no matter what. This is true. Okay. So I'm just, and also now you're leaning on the six-year-old part, huh? Yes, <laughs> that's a, that. No, that's an actually that is an excellent rejoinder, which is to say, how can he simultaneously be a genius, but it's six-year-old, you know, at six years old? I mean, although again, that would have been an interesting book too, yeah. right? To have a a kid who still laughs at butt, yes, <laughs> also be a genius somehow, right? Like. But it, it's not believable. One of the things I don't like about it is that it is portrayed as actually knowingly cruel that he does this to Bernard. Knowingly cool right? or cruel? Cruel. Oh, okay. Cruel. Like knowingly that this is, he knows that this will be a way of undoing his leadership. Yeah. Right? So it's it's calculated in a way that, <laughs> but is not. <laughs> So. But still funny. Sorry. So Dan, <laughs> you're ta- look, look, you're talking to someone who still cannot say the country name of Djibouti without giggling. <laughs> when you put it like that. Yes. Yeah, so I guess, you know, in this series, the is it problematic part is going to be my section of, <laughs> of the podcast. But we still have a section that's all you, Dan. Dan, is there IR in this book? There is, in fact, a fair amount of IR in this book. Uh, some of it is very conventional, some of it is unconventional, and some of it, I think, is legitimately controversial. So let's start with the conventional, which is to say that essentially there's sort of your standard, you know, balancing behavior on Earth, which is in, when confronted with the greater threat of uh, the Fornix, everyone on Earth sort of puts aside their differences. They agree to a lie and create this league to fight them. That said, you know, the Warsaw Pact is obviously prepping for a post-bugger world politics. And indeed, there were echoes in this, to me, to my mind at least, of the very end of World War II, at least on the European front, where you actually had U.S. officials and actually and British officials as well as Soviet officials basically trying to figure out how much, you know, how quickly should they move against the Nazis with the idea that the better they did, the more territory they would be able to control in the sort of post-World War II carve-up. That's really, you know, there's nothing particularly spectacular about this, but it does all ring true. And, I, you know, I would generally say it's perfectly fine in terms of realpolitik. Anna, do you have any thoughts okay. on Okay. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'd be honest, like some of the stuff about the whole balancing of world powers, I'm just like, yeah, 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 yeah. You know, all right. Right. As I cool. said, look, I mean. And, and it's more interesting to me. It, it was more interesting to me, I will say, as the sort of setting for the battle between Demosthenes and. Right. Locke. I tend to agree with that, which is, yeah. It's not actually interesting in and of itself. No, it was standard garden variety stuff. And I, you know, it. it, it let me this way. I, what I would give him credit for is that 
it also didn't like raise my cause me to raise my eyebrows at all. It's entirely plausible. The more unconventional element of the international relations in this book, which I really did actually think was interesting, was the idea that the human bugger war was basically caused by a lack of intersubjective understanding. Literally, because the buggers and the humans cannot communicate with each other, we never know why the buggers come to Earth. We never, in fact, are entirely sure how the buggers view the humans. In fact, do they view the humans in the same way that they view themselves, which is to say destroying drones or individual humans would not, in fact, be all that big of a deal since it would not be all that big of a deal in their own culture. And so in this sense, this is really social constructivism for the win in terms of an explanation for why there's conflict, because with an inability to create shared understandings, yeah, there's going to be conflict. And it's interesting here, I think, because this is the one area of subtlety that I really liked about this book, is that Ender's greatest strength throughout this book, and particularly during the battle room sequences, is literally his ability to adopt different perspectives. So, in other words, one of the big ideas in the book, and the thing that clearly Orson Scott Card found very appealing when he originally came up with the idea, is that in the battle room, Ender succeeds because the moment he gets into zero gravity, he's able to change his orientation. He's able to realize that what is up is now, or actually what is is up is now north, and what is, you know, straight ahead is now down. And in some ways, that is why Ender is able to succeed in the battle school. And it's interesting about whether or not, you know, his need to understand others in order to be able to defeat them. And and we see this also in, in sort of Graf and Ender's conversation about being unable to communicate with the Fornix, which is why there is a war to begin with. And and so that I did actually think was was legitimately interesting. Well, of course, as you know, the show's postmodernist cultural Marxist. Um, the idea that wars are caused by subjective misunderstandings is, yes, <laughs> you know, makes me feel all warm and fuzzy inside because that's sort of the way that I look at the world, that our cultures, you know, prepare us in different ways and how we see things and that a lot of times what seems like a misunderstanding is a literal inability to think like the other sort of culture thinks. Um, I did find this compelling and I... I'm almost talking myself into liking this book more than I thought I did because of this stuff that, again, I almost don't want to know. I don't know if he should give credit for it or not, but it doesn't matter. Again, my postmodernist uh, training should say it doesn't matter what the author wants. If it's in there, it's in there. Um, in other words, even against his against his attempted efforts, he actually did slip in some high liter, you know, some like fine literature elements. I think there. he might have. Yes. <laughs> Yes, that's the way to um, And that is like, again, in, in that is one of the three lines that makes you care about Ender, right? Is that he alone, among everyone else in the book, understands the importance of seeing things through another person's eyes or another being's yes. eyes and understanding the way that that being thinks. And it's the tragedy of Ender, right? Like right. that he is the only one that can imagine what it's like perhaps to be a bugger right right and it, i mean ender again which is he why does say this why at one point he child soldier it hits him so right. incredibly hard and he says this to valentine at one point where he says the problem is, is that for me to defeat my enemy i have to love them yeah and in that moment i actually love them which again is is, is genuinely interesting and and something that's like you know i i haven't been around enough military people i guess to know if this is something that is thought about in those arenas, but I found it very powerful. So anyway. No, I agree. I think it was, and again, it's, it's the idea that you have to respect and honor and understand your enemy in order to be able to, to in theory win. 
the more controversial is what I would describe as the great man theory um, <laughs> of international <laughs> politics, which is literally that's what this yeah. is called, um, which is the, the notion that um, that the tides of international relations are fundamentally determined by individuals. Now, it's interesting because within the, the sort of international relations theory for the longest time, um, sort of individual leaders used to be dismissed as insignificant compared to much more powerful sort of structural forces or domestic politics or something. And there's been something of a renaissance in recent years in terms of scholarship about the idea that individual leader psychology uh, matters. That said, I think Card goes way overboard um, in this book in the notion that Essentially, the this war was going to be determined in terms of won or lost based on the ability of a commander. That is not generally how wars work. Uh, while there is no denying that that individual leadership plays a significant role uh, in terms of whether how quickly one side can win or another, you know, material forces matter a fair amount. Um, <laughs> and and I cannot stress this enough. This is something that I think a lot of people who don't study international relations uh, often conflates they often conflate two things international relations is not military history and military history while somewhat important is not all of international relations and really in some ways what clearly inspired orson scott Carr when he wrote this was military history mm-hmm. and there is no denying that that ender as a leader is significant and so forth but within international relations the idea that one leader can fundamentally change everything i'm not as persuaded by that and that is the peter subplot too right yeah like that that two people but really kind of well actually the thing i like about that um demosthenes uh lock subplot is that valentine realizes at some point she's actually the more powerful of the two because she can empathize Mm -hmm. which is a cool trick like that's yes that's that is um an insight and a twist that i've you know, I did make me think. Um, yeah. Yeah, this is, <laughs> you know, what's funny about that, though, is that for the buggers, it is the great woman theory of history, and it is true. <laughs> I hadn't thought about that. It is completely okay. true. Like, for no, that's, that that's race, yep. there is yep. one. <laughs> it really is all determined by, like, a single. <laughs> it really is biological determinism, too. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. Yeah. All right. But it's just I'll, I'll concede the point. Humans there. aren't like that. That's the thing. Is like, in yeah. in I also feel like that could have been like an interesting kind of wrinkle to put into a book like this. Is the way that when you go down the chain of command, those people are individuals too, and those people make decisions based on whatever is happening in their lives and whatever is happening in, in front of them. And the only time that's ever even like gestured at is that Ender's, you know, brilliance in recognizing times when he should let his commanders, you know, do their own thing. Right. But it's still the brilliance of, of Ender. Right. And it's set up that only Ender could have done this. It, that That is the crux of the novel. And, in the end, I, it, it's it's an argument too far from. Me. Yeah, and also like it 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 is the genesis of the the genesis of the plot is that someone thinks there is going to be a six year old who someday will be able to defeat the buggers, and right. yeah, it, it seems odd to me that on an overpopulated Earth, they stress several times that the Earth is overpopulated. There would be one yeah. six year old to focus on, like <laughs> just one, just one. You know, like, and he's the only one. He's our only hope. It's literally, they say, he's our only hope, I think. 
I, you know, times. I don't know why Ender the Bugger Slayer couldn't have been the alternative <laughs> title for this. Yes, that actually, see, you know, that is an explanation, right, for why <laughs> Buffy. Like, there's no kind of like why Ender and why why are the Wiggins so smart? Like, there's it's it's right. it's posited that these three children just happen to be the most brilliant people on the planet. And there's not a lot of explanation about how we know that. No, like, and also they seem to way, know that about themselves. But so he makes clear it's not genetics because I mean we we get snippets of his, you know their parents and clearly their parents are not meant to be as smart as they are. Um, yeah, it's it's a, it's, so, a, it's a it's a weird hole that again like we're already in our own science fiction. I'm willing to grant a lot of like lifting the veil of disbelief. But Dan, let's move on. All right, Anna, let's move on from is there IR to are there other themes in this book? Uh, interestingly, I think uh, there is an echo of our Expanse discussions here in the nature versus nurture um, question. I, again, don't know if this is intended, but how to create a sociopath. <laughs> you know, there's it's almost an instruction book, right? Uh, and that's interesting to me. Also, in his introduction, one of the things that, that Card says that resonated with me, one of the few things that it kind of like, I was like, huh, is he says children are a permanent underclass. Hmm. And that is an interesting political idea that doesn't really yes. get explored. And um, you know what, Dan? War is hell. No, actually, <laughs> I will say reading this, um, you, you laugh at that, but I, I will say reading this again, that was the thing that stood out to me, that, that the horrors that are, that are put upon Ender to do what he has to do are, maybe it's because, you know, we're reading this in lockdown or what have you, but I, I felt it more keenly this time. The other thing I would say is that this book is easily the weirdest mix of social Darwinism and social constructivism I have ever seen in my life. The only other theme I would I would offer, and I really mean this mostly in jest, is that children are evil. And I am glad someone is finally saying that out loud. I think one of the reasons that I wrote uh, the book Toddler in Chief was to suggest that, you know what, sometimes toddlers actually are sociopaths, which means that sometimes six-year-olds or eight-year-olds or 12-year-olds or can also be sociopaths. And I think, you know, frankly, our culture will be better if we acknowledge that fact just from time to time. Uh Again, we shan't we shan't get into it because we have to wrap up. But uh, there's some stuff in The Shining about that that I think is really it's kind of an interesting idea that I think King believes that children occasionally are sociopaths. That it's sort of part of growing up that you do have a not, uh, lack of understanding about about subjectivity. Like you do, you do maybe torture an insect because you have you want to see what it does. You know. We now move to uh, loved it, hated it. Anna, what were the parts of the book that you loved? What were the parts of the book that you hated? I thought it was very accurate um, depiction of PTSD. Harrowing description of it. I already said this, but I the scene where he finds the message left to him by the buggers is, I, it, again, it's a twist that maybe doesn't get enough credit. Like, I, I didn't see it coming, and I sort of figured it out with him, you know, in the book. Right. And... It works and in, in, in a way like uh, you don't see a lot of science fiction, I think, unfortunately, truly engage with alien ways of thinking. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this feels yeah. alien, right? It's an alien way of, of communicating. First of all, I like how you're foreshadowing our next yes. podcast. But, <laughs> but but yes, no, I agree that, that one of the things that good science fiction does is come up with genuinely 
alien ideas or concepts that you think, yeah, you know what? That's weird. That is truly not human, as it were. And I think the the bugger concept does work that way. Yes. And I also did not really mean to laugh at the idea of it. one of its themes being war as hell. I, I think it's a true thing. So, of course, like, it's a good theme. And then also... Uh, the way that war dehumanizes haha people or beings or whatever <laughs> the way the fact like i thought it was funny that you refer to them as uh fornix pretty regularly when, when we were talking about uh this episode because i do think that that i almost feel bad using the word bugger yes that was actually why i used fornix uh um, yeah like everyone i, I say it and i'm like you know that really epithet. sounds like the b word you know, yes. um, <laughs> exactly. But that said, you know, it. you can't I, I actually I'm not even sure the word fornic appears in the novel to be. Honest. I don't think it does because I think I would have recognized it. So, yeah. So uh, but it is in the description of. of you know. And then uh, hated it. I've already said many of the things that I don't like about it. The writing is also pretty leaden, I would say. Like it's not in the realm of genre. You know, it's it's fine but there are places where it gets a little clunky <laughs> most of it is when he's saying describing how ender is growing up and it's a lot of it's just a lot of showing and not telling but again like i feel like i've almost talked myself into liking this book more than i thought i did <laughs> so so what do you love and hate dan uh, what i love and hate is actually the same thing which is there is a device that en- that's card uses in the book which is almost every chapter opens with sort of anonymous dialogue between essentially the military commanders um, in which they're sort of explaining, again, they are telling, not showing what they plan to do to Ender. And I have to admit, I actually think it's Card's best writing in the book because there is a Mm. mordant wit in those sections. There's sort of a, uh, there's a sort of deadpan humor in terms of, yeah, we're just saving the world. That's not, not a big deal, which I actually found was effective. That said, I also don't like it because in the end, if you step back, basically what this book is saying is that the military commanders were so smart that they could figure out that this six-year-old kid was the one who was going to save them from the entire, you know, save the entire world, and that they were going to train him in the most perfect way imaginable to, like, simultaneously have him be as ruthless as Peter and yet as empathic as as Valentine and love Earth enough so that he was going to, you know, defend it. And there was just a little, you know... No one is that, no plan works that perfectly. And I would say, like, there's a lot of really good science fiction that's about how those plans go wrong. You yes, know? exactly. <laughs> how we invent the perfect whatever to do the perfect thing and that our creation does not do what we think it will do. And, and, and this, and is, this is not one of them. <laughs> no, this is, we are going to have this master plan and the master plan works perfectly in the end. That is not the and conflict sure in this book. <laughs> yes, yes. So that was, you know... I I both like and hate that, I guess would be the way to put it. All right, Dan, our final question. Yes. Is this canon or is this fodder? And I want to say up front, and maybe I'll say this every time we do this series, because I want to be really clear, is I am sort of anti-cancel culture. Well, I shouldn't even say that. I think that works of art can often stand on their own apart from their creator. Oh, yes. And so I am loath to kind of totally cancel any piece of art. However, I think what I want to do with these series is talk about, is this the book that that needs to be on, on the shelf in a place of honor? It's not, should we throw it away and never read it? It's, 
should we maybe look at other stuff and 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 it's, it's, this is happens in literature, right? Is is books and thinkers move in and out of kind of favor, right. and not just favor, like in in and out of thinking of how important they are, right? Right. So uh, I will go first, and I will say it's fodder. Um, mm. Again, I kind of talked myself into liking this book more than I thought I did, but um, it does remind me of Atlas Shrugged in the ways that it kind of flatters the reader to a point that is almost unhealthy <laughs> in the reader. And it flatters a very specific kind of reader. It, it, right. I bet Ted Cruz fucking loved this book. <laughs> I just thought of that. And I am quite certain it is true. Yeah, fair enough. And that in and of itself should be an argument against it. And I have to say, if you want to read a series by a canceled bigot, May I suggest a little guy named Harry Potter? So, oh, <laughs> okay. which is also about a young man, a gifted young man, finding his way in the world, and has sort of been deemed to stand apart from the shit that J.K. Rowling has has pulled. And it is also true that weirdly, you know, one of the reasons it stands apart from her is that Harry is humble and empathic and struggles with his power. And that is actually something Ender never does. He never thinks to himself, should I have the kind of power that I do? Which is sort of... I, I think that's because he doesn't think of himself as powerful, weirdly enough. And so I, I will close by saying, I, you know, I was on the fence on this one, but as we've talked through this, I'm going to say canon, actually. Not major canon. This, this, you know, we'll it's we'll invent like the, the minor most... canon category for no, this it, series. It, I, think it, <laughs> I, I really do think, let me put it this way, I think if you are interested in science fiction, I think it would be incorrect not to read this book because it does speak to a couple of interesting things. It does have legitimately one of the greatest plot twists in, in the entire genre, but also he really does come up with an interesting alien sort of adversary and in the ways in which Ender has to defeat them I think maybe even beyond his own attention winds up coming up with some very subtle arguments about the nature of what empathy means and the nature of being able to understand what what your adversary is doing with that said I, I will also acknowledge that you know I have Orson Scott Card is problematic the rest of the series is is not great and maybe this is me sort of still clutching to this book the first time I read it, which is it's a crackling good read the first time you read yeah. it. I, I honestly think that that's the, you know, and so uh, I will say canon. And again, to be very clear, you're not a bad person. If you like this book, you're not a bad person. If you think it's canon, my quest in doing this series is to try and broaden the canon more than anything else. Um, right. Because there are other voices and other perspectives that are by reading them, you do the thing that Orson Scott Card seems to, you know, say we should do, which is think differently. Right. Like um, Octavia Butler will definitely read some Octavia Butler and her way of looking at the world. You know, it's it is very different, <laughs> you know, from a straight homophobic white guy. And. So that is kind of what I think about when I think about when we're taking books off of the shelf. Like, what are we making room for? I like that. I guess I would say that I, I, ideally you don't need, in adding something, you don't need to subtract yeah. something. Yeah. Mm. And so... 
in a perfect world. Yeah. Um, but I, will, I just want to add one last thing. You know, if anyone is hearing my dog barking, we, this is why we have to wrap up because he's going nuts. I interviewed a woman once who was a graduate student studying science fiction, Octavia Butler specifically. Um, and at one point I asked her what her formative works had been. She, and she came to science fiction late in, late in life. Like she came to Octavia Butler as like a college student. And she was mm-hmm. like, and I, I named like, you know, Asimov, you know, Orson Scott Card, uh, C.S. Lewis. I think I probably by accident named all white men. <laughs> right. Not by accident, though. That's who the canon is in sci-fi, right? Yeah. And she said, you know what? I don't have the time to read a bunch of, you know, dead white guys. Um, and I, I doffed my cap to her basically, you know, like, and, and I think that that is a good, I, I think more power to her. I, I think that you don't have to read this book. Uh, okay. I guess the way I would put it is, let me put this way. You're not wasting that much time by reading this book. This is not a, <laughs> this is not Atlas Shrugged and, right. and, in the sense of. You know, this is a tight, quick read. You can read this in a weekend. It's not going to be that much of a uh, I'm, imposition, I, I guess. I, see, you're talking in the specific, and I'm talking in the general. And because I want to talk about the specific <laughs> book, but we should. Wrap and I up. agree I that apologize. that is a, a miscommunication. We are thinking in different subjective terms. There we go, uh, Dan. We have some announcements for people. As you mentioned, Alien is our next text. I don't think that's cannon fodder. I think that's just going to be a good read, or sorry, a good watch for us mm-hmm. i don't think it's been deemed problematic in any way like which is I would weird hope not. Um, like, but i look forward almost. to watching it again and like yeah. finding out whether that's the case maybe we can find something problematic in it, there's pr- mostly I mean, what you know it, there's probably stuff that's not great but um we'll find one out. of my but the point is it's a really good movie and we want to watch it. um we are also going to do our ama on march 6th at 10 a.m 10 30 Central or Eastern? Central. Oh, <laughs> maybe we should check this before this goes out. <laughs> uh, I have it 10. Okay. I'll start over. We are also going to do our first ever AMA. Uh, I am kind of trying to figure out uh, the technical part of that. I have not done a great job with the technical stuff on this podcast, but, you know, working on it. Um, but it'll be March 6th at 10 o'clock a.m. Central Time. Um, hope- Which means 11 o'clock Eastern. 11 o'clock Eastern, and hopefully that means um, our friends uh, in uh, on the other side of the oceans um, can participate. We are huge in Belgium. <laughs> as well. We welcome any and all comments. Maybe this will start a good discussion on our you know Patreon. We would love to see that and love to incorporate that perhaps into our next AMA, which will be sometime in April. We invite you to become a patron. I think that I will make the discussion about this book open to public because I think it'll be cool to have as many people as possible um, participate in it. But if you're a patron, well, you can just throw some money for $3 a month. um, And beyond that, starting at $5 a month, you get early access plus some other goodies. And you can do that at patreon.com slash space the nation. Dan, I think that's it. So keep this channel open for more. 